Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to those of you who are visiting with us, uh, families of those who have graduated, and to the graduates, may the Lord bless you, congratulations, uh, good to, to hear from you a little bit this morning, and uh, for all of you who are, who are visiting with us, a warm welcome to you. We find ourselves this morning in Genesis chapter 43, as we make our way through the narrative and the story of the life of Joseph, the purposes of God in the land of affliction. And we find ourselves in Genesis chapter 43. You can make your way there. As we read the passage, uh, read the passage this morning and then dive into what the Lord has for us from Genesis chapter 43. Genesis 43, this is after jo- uh, Joseph's brothers, where they go to Egypt to buy food, they have returned, and they tell Jacob all about that. Uh, they, they, they're not able to return to Egypt and buy food again unless they take their younger brother Benjamin with them. And so here's where we find ourselves in Genesis 43, verse 1. It says, now the famine was severe in the land. And when they had eaten the grain that they had bought from Egypt, their father said to them, go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, the man solemnly warned us, saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Now, if you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel, Jacob, said, why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? They replied, the man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was an answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say to us to bring your brother down? And Judah said to to Israel, his father, send the boy with me, and we will arise and go, so that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would have gone down and back twice by now. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man. A little balm, a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise. Go again to the man. May God Almighty, El Shaddai, grant you mercy before the man. And may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So the men took the present, and they took double the money with them and and Benjamin. They arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. And when Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph had told him, and he brought them into Joseph's house. And the men were afraid, because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, It's because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we are brought in, so that he may assault us and fall upon us and make us servants and seize our donkeys. So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, Oh, my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened up our sacks, and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. 
So we brought it again with us. And we've brought other money down with us to buy food. We have no idea who put our money in our sacks. He replied, Peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought out Simeon to them. And when the man had brought them in into Joseph's house, and this is the first time they're going into the house, and given them water, and they had washed their feet and given their donkeys fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they should eat bread there. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them, and they all bowed down to him to the ground. And Joseph inquired about their welfare, saying, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? They said, Your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out. For his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out. And controlling, controlling himself, he said, serve the food. They served him by himself, and them by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves. Because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, for that's an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. And they drank and were merry with him. It makes life quite difficult when we face circumstances that leave us feeling inadequate and powerless. A recent New York Times article published May 12th, uh, just a few days ago, was titled, Inflation Anger. Are you experiencing inflation anger? The author of the article reflects on the current attitude of the American public as we face high inflation. He states, inflation stands out from other problems because it is so inescapable. Unlike unemployment, it affects everyone. And people encounter inflation every day when they go to the grocery store, drive by a gas station, or buy almost anything. And then he says this, inflation also co contributes to a sense of powerlessness. Well, inflation isn't the only hardship we face. There are a range, of course, of other hardships that we face constantly throughout our lives. And many of you facing hardships at this very moment, and perhaps they vary in kind and severity, but we all face what perhaps we could describe as a seemingly in inescapable problem that leaves us with a sense of powerlessness. This isn't unique to 40-year high inflation, and it's not unique to our culture or the 21st century. Inescapable problems that leave us with a sense of powerlessness can describe and has described people throughout history. And perhaps even here this morning, you've got on your mind one of those situations that is seemingly inescapable, that leaves you with a sense of powerlessness. Maybe you would say with the psalmist in Psalm 42 where he says, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and all your waves have gone over me. Life at times can seem like drowning. 
The waves keep crashing into us. Currents keep pulling us around. And there's nothing to hold on to. But there is someone to hold on to. And I have to give you the conclusion the psalmist made in Psalm 42. It's in verse 11. Where he says, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. This is a good place to stop and ask if indeed God is your hope, if he is your praise, if he is your salvation. Because in those times in life when the waves are crashing over us and there's nothing to hold on to, Jesus is our rock. And his salvation is found by placing your total dependence in Jesus Christ. Now, if you and I were to go to heaven right now, and we were to ask Jacob, or Israel, as he's referred to here, if we were to ask him how he was feeling at this point in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 43, with the famine, with no food in the cupboards, with you know, the very lives of his children and grandchildren hanging in the balance, and now being asked to send his beloved son of the woman he loved the most, Rachel, to Egypt, I think it's safe to say he would agree with our statement. It was a seemingly inescapable problem that left him with a sense of powerlessness, which, by the way, Jacob or Israel was not used to in his life, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But we find the topic of today's sermon in Jacob's statement in verse 14. May God Almighty, that's the, it's the Hebrew word uh, name El Shaddai, may God Almighty. There's one God, but he goes by different names in the Bible. And this name for God, El Shaddai, God Almighty, is used only six times in the first five books of the Bible. And each time it's used, it's used to describe God's enablement in the present so that he will accomplish his purposes in the future. When God speaks to Moses in Exodus chapter 6, verse 3, he says, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, as El Shaddai. He was the God who blessed them and sustained them through their earthly lives as he continued to unfold a story that would go far beyond their earthly lives, ultimately pointing to the Savior, Jesus Christ. He is God Almighty, the self-sufficient God who is near. And while we note that Jacob, Israel, is the one who invokes the name God Almighty, he's not so much a great example of unmovable faith. He's more pessimistic, unsure, and insecure than he is a great man of faith. But we still see that through this story, God Almighty is powerfully present when life is unraveled, uncertain, and unexplained. Like Jacob and the brothers, life will often leave us with circumstances that seem or are inescapable and leave us with a sense of powerlessness and weakness. Yeah, maybe we should say that more than leaving us with a sense of powerlessness, we all face circumstances that remind us of the reality. We are, in fact, powerless. And we are, in fact, weak. And there are things that are, in fact, inescapable this side of heaven. So here's my main point as we dive into the rest of this chapter. Because God is El Shaddai, God Almighty, We ought to be content with our weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest upon us. Jesus Christ is God in flesh. He's the Messiah. He is the one to whom all people will one day bow. He is the full manifestation of God Almighty. He is God Almighty. 
And when we are content with our powerlessness and our weakness, then Christ's power rests upon us. And that's exactly what Paul discovered in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10. Where Paul is praying for God to remove this painful thorn in his flesh. Something in his life that was, was as painful as a thorn in the flesh. And here's what, here's what God says to Paul. It says, he says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And so this morning, as we go through Genesis 43, we're going to stop by the house of lost control the patio of lingering fear, and the table of lavish grace to see how God, God Almighty, is indeed powerfully present when life is unraveled, uncertain, and unexplained. All so that we will be men and women who are content with our powerlessness, our weakness, so that Christ's power may rest upon us. So let's stop by the house of lost control. God Almighty is powerfully present When life is unraveled, uncertain, and unexplained, as seen, first of all, in the house of lost control. We start the chapter in Jacob's house. Jacob realizes that he doesn't have a grip on his situation. And this is something new for Jacob. Like I said earlier, this is something new for Jacob. Jacob always had a grip on his situation. Most of what we read in scripture about Jacob has him at the steering wheel of his life, so to speak. Jacob, the heel grabber, if you remember when he was born, he was born a twin. His brother came out first and Jacob came out right behind him, hanging on to him. He always had a hand on the situation. He usually found a way to get what he wanted. He, he found a way to enrich his life and secure his future. His future. As a matter of fact, there was a time in Jacob's life, or Israel, as he is referred to here, uh, there was a time where he was actually in a wrestling match with God over the night. And God eventually breaks his hip. And yet, Jacob, the man who's always got a grip on things, wouldn't let God go. And God would say to him, he said, you have striven with God and man and have prevailed. That doesn't necessarily mean it's a good thing. But it's how God described him, and that's when God changed his name from Jacob to Israel, how he's referred to here. But he always came out on top, whether he was facing his father Isaac, whether his brother Esau, whether his father-in-law Laban, whether Esau again, or God himself. He always found a way to make sure his life was going in the right direction, the direction he wanted it to go. But Jacob isn't God Almighty. And now we see Jacob... Israel with no control on his situation. He's losing his grip. He's having a negative attitude. He's scolding his sons as an escape for making a decision. He's jeopardizing himself and the livelihood of his family. We're in Jacob's house, the house of lost control. Jacob tells his sons to return and go buy food, and and Judah, uh, from whom will come the great leader, the king of kings, Jesus Christ, steps forward and begins to take that sort of leadership we would expect from such a tribe. And Judah has to remind his father that they can't return without Benjamin. And Jacob responds. And perhaps the way he responds is the same way we respond when we face troubles. First off was pouting. 
Why did you treat me so badly? To tell the man you had another brother. Pouting. It's almost as if Jacob is asking his brothers, why didn't you just lie about it? If the man did ask you, why didn't you blur the truth a little bit? If you know anything about Jacob, if there's anyone who knows how to not be completely honest, it's Jacob. And he, here he's in some sense blaming his sons. Right? Because Jacob had a grip on the situation. Go to Egypt, buy food, come back. And now he's starting to lose it all. And instead of making a decision, he pouts and scolds his children and how his sons had messed it up. Little parentheses here. Our children will never cause us to lose our grip on a situation in life. They'll be used by God to remind us of the reality that we don't have final control and that we're not God Almighty. Amen? Pouting didn't change the situation. Well, perhaps presence. Perhaps this will ensure the situation stays in Jacob's favor. Give him presence. Uh, if you remember back in Genesis chapter 37, when Joseph was sold to the Ishmaelites, they were taken to G- Egypt, gum, balm, and myrrh. And this is the same things that Jacob throws in here, except he throws in some honey and peanuts into the mix. And you could argue that Jacob was perhaps right in sending a gift to a man of such high leadership. Yet this may also be a way that Jacob, always having to be the controller, like he did with Esau, sending gifts, keeps things in his favor. As a matter of fact, in three verses, from verses 11 through 14, Uh, 11, 12, and 13, he gives seven orders, seven commands. Here's exactly how you're going to do it. Well, maybe if it's not pouting or presence, maybe trying to pay off God or pay off somebody else to get the situation back in our control, maybe it's pessimism. He sends them on their way with the blessing of El Shaddai, God Almighty, but his closing statement really reveals his heart. This is, this is first when it says at the end of verse 14, he says, And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. This is the first recorded, it is what it is. Warren Rearsby comments on this part and he says, There's a difference between surrendering to God's loving providence and bowing to blind fate. And Jacob's statements show where he stood. His feelings of grief and despair had almost extinguished his faith. Later in the story, his sons, when Joseph asks, they're going to describe Joseph as doing well. Well, not so much. They might as well have said, our father is well. Well, he's alive. Jacob was going to have to play by somebody else's rule somebody else's rules. And little did he know it was his son Joseph. Little did he know that God Almighty was working all things together for his good. Little did he know he was what he viewed as losing control. God was total, in total control, using the situation to save him and his family. God was going to give Jacob God's beauty for Jacob's ashes. Yet Jacob was trying to keep control. And so he invokes the name of El Shaddai. Yet many of us are the same way. We know of God's providence, but we often struggle to surrender to his loving providence. We live life as if we are bowing down to blind fate because it is what it is. And whether it's through pouting or presence to others in God or pessimism, we just hope for the best because it is what it is. 
And so here's something very practical we can all do and should do often as we face these situations. Remind yourself that God runs this world, not you, not me. This is what makes the promise of Romans 8:28 so beautiful and precious and believable. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. This could not be said, at least truthfully anyways, if I ran my world. This could not be said of you, Christian, if you ran your world. God runs this world, not me, not you. Let's move on from the house of lost control to the patio of lingering fear. The brothers arrive in Egypt and they make their way to Joseph's establishment where their plan was to get Simeon, get food, and get out. So they got their present ready to go. They got the extra money. They got Benjamin. Certainly everything's going to work according to plan. Certainly things are going to go smoothly from here on out. And they're looking forward to a smooth transaction. Probably a little anxious, of course, as they approach. But as we read, when Joseph sees Benjamin he orders the steward of his house to go and get ready for this huge lunch at noon. And he tells the steward of his house to bring the men into the house to slaughter an animal for that noontime feast. Now, we have the, what I'll call the omniscient view. Okay, not that we know everything, but in this story, we know what's going on. We know what's going on behind the scenes. We know what's coming up next. We know all that stuff. The brothers didn't. And so we think, oh yeah, they're being invited to a feast. But the brothers, of course, are swarmed with other thoughts. They are taken to Joseph's house. But I want you to notice in verse 17, the men, or the man, the steward, did as Joseph told him and brought them into Joseph's house. And it's like, you know, it's probably a huge compound, you know, and they're probably free to kind of do whatever they want, but they're just standing outside the door. Because if you notice, uh, verse, they don't go in until verse 24. And when the man had brought them in into Joseph's house, So they're really not too fond of the idea of stepping inside the house. And it it tells us why. They're standing outside because they're fearful about going into the house. Fear often causes us to have a single explanation with only one possible outcome, and it's normally the worst of the worst. And then it causes us to think that a totally insufficient remedy will actually remedy the situation. The brothers were confident in their interpretation of the scenario. Have you ever been confident, so confident in your interpretation of what's going on in your life, there was no way you got it wrong, and then you got it wrong? For the brothers, there could be only one reason they were brought into Joseph's house. Only one reason. Someone had found out about the return money, and it was told to Joseph, now they are at his house where they will be assaulted, forced to be slaves, and their donkeys would be stolen. As I read this, I was reminded of a time when I was, I think I was in junior high, um, and I was sent, uh, during school, I was sent to the principal's office for misbehaving. Now, don't ask me what I was doing. I don't remember. I really don't. But the principal told me that he was going to call my dad and let him know that I had been to the principal's office and why I had been there. So, of course, I get home, and, and all the time from when, after I got home from school, and I'm sitting there waiting for dad to get home knowing that indeed my principal had called and told him that I'd been to the principal that day and what I had done. Well, sure enough, evening comes, and, and uh, uh, my, brother, my brother and I were sitting in the living room, and we, we uh, 
see the, the glare of the glass on the car window, and he pulls in the driveway. And my dad opens the door, and he stands at the entry of the door, and he says to my brother, Eric, you may want to step outside. <laughs> and I'm thinking, I'm a dead man. <laughs> and then after a little pause, my dad said to me, Zach, you may want to go outside too. My dad had just purchased a brand new truck for his business that he ran, and he wanted to show it off. But I, could, uh, I, I can't tell you the scenarios that were going through my mind as I was waiting for my dad, and then he tells my brother to step outside. That wasn't normal. And I didn't think I did anything that bad. But they were confident that they have interpreted the scenario properly, the right way, and there's no other, there's no other explanation. And they were confident in their remedy they go up to the steward of, of, of the house. And the steward, by the way, is probably standing at the door thinking, why, why are they just standing there? This, this, this place is theirs almost. And so the brothers tell him what happened. And then at the end of verse 21, they say, so here's what we've done to remedy the situation. They're telling, this, they're telling all this to the steward who as they will come to find out, knows more about the returned money than they do. And the steward is one of my favorite, one of my favorite participants of this story. I'm so glad God included him in the historical uh, record of scripture. Because the Egyptian steward who works for Joseph, we know what he says, he says, peace to you, do not be afraid. And then notice these words, your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Now how on earth does this Egyptian steward know about the God of their father? Unless someone told him. El Shaddai is powerfully present when life is uncertain. Because whatever certainty the brothers thought they had a moment ago went completely out the window. And they must have been scratching their heads trying to figure out what's going on. And yet here is this Egyptian steward who goes nameless, but one of my favorite participants in this story. And here is this steward being a source of comfort to these 11 men and instilling in them confidence in God. By the way, shouldn't that have been Jacob? We are not to worry or fear what we do not know for certain. We serve a loving God who through Christ has shown that he loves and cares for his own. Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 6 says that we, we are not to fret about tomorrow, about the uncertainties, of the uncertainties of the future, because we're of greater value to God than anything else in creation. Like the birds, for example. We're not to fret about the uncertainties of the future, because the care God shows to his creation pales in comparison to the care he shows to his redeemed and you might be sitting here this morning and say, yeah, it's easy to say that we shouldn't worry or fear about what we don't know for certain, but, but what if my worst fears actually do come true? That's a fair question. My friend and mentor of mine, Kurt DeGraff, wrote a devotional book, and he actually refers to this question in that book, and, he, and here's what he says about that question. He says, understand that until a perceived worry or fear is an actual reality, we don't need God's grace to bear up under it. But when we need it, God's grace will be there. 
We don't need God's grace for problems that don't exist. We need God's grace for the problems that exist now, in reality. And the promise is that if those fears and those worries actually do come true, God's grace will truly be there as well. We return to our verse we started with. My grace is sufficient for you. We must be reminded that we shouldn't worry or fear about the uncertain problems of tomorrow because the certainty of God's grace. His grace will meet us there if or when we actually face those problems. Remind yourself that El Shaddai, God Almighty, gives today's grace for today's problems. If fears become reality, God's grace will be there too. But the brothers were in for a greater surprise. Simeon is released from his confinement, and we move now from the patio of lingering fear to the table of lavish grace. The story turns a little bit here. We're not like, we're no longer really facing a problem. I mean, it's not like a, no, it's not like a like a uh, the problem being is like how to explain what's going on. That's the only problem. But it wasn't a problem of suffering or a po- problem of hardship necessarily here. But this is just a confusing story. It's unexplainable, humanly speaking. Certainly to the brothers, it was unexplainable. The last thing they expected to receive was an invitation to a banquet in the home of the second ruler of all Egypt. That's exactly what happens. Jesus return, or Jesus, Joseph returns home, and all 11 brothers bow down. And at that very moment, 20-plus years in the waiting, all the way from Genesis 37, the first dream of Joseph is fulfilled. And it, the Bible doesn't even really stop to narrate that. It moves right ahead. Where Joseph, now with these 11 men bowing before him, he scans the room, and then he sees them. His younger brother, and the only one of his brothers who shared the same mother as him. The brother who was only a couple years behind him in age. And he pronounces a blessing on him. God, be gracious to you. And that's when Joseph realized on a far far deeper level that God had been gracious Perhaps here, Joseph thought of the many long-lost summers, memories of his childhood with his closest brother and friend, which he was so violently and maliciously robbed. And his compassion grew warm for his brother. And at this moment in the story, if you're reading this for the first time, you would think, well, this is it. This is when Joseph says, Benjamin, it's me, it's your brother. Instead, though, he doesn't. He runs out of the room. And he's searching for a place to weep. And he does. He finds a room. He weeps. And then he washes his face. He composes himself. And he returns to the room. And then we think, well, maybe this is it. This is is where he tells him who he really is. I mean, this is his brother. His compassion, his heart is just longing to embrace him. Surely the next words out of his mouth will be his identity. But it's serve the food. Joseph wasn't yet ready to reveal his true identity. Not without one more test to verify his ten older brothers' integrity, which we'll look at, Lord willing, next week. But for now, Joseph is a channel of God's lavish grace. And his brothers are invited to eat at the table of lavish grace. We see God's grace all over the place in this story. That Joseph maintained a vibrant, intimate relationship with his God is grace. 
He has been in an idol-worshiping, polytheistic-serving culture for 20-plus years. Yet he not only maintained his integrity in his relationship with God, he also told his steward about his God. So that even his steward, the first thing he thinks about when those brothers show up is, peace to you, don't be afraid. You're God. You're God. The God of your father has given you treasure. His heart remained warm and compassionate through years of undeserved suffering. That's grace. That's God Almighty's lavish grace. That's El Shaddai's lavish grace. The brothers received a banquet from a second ruler. They were pampered and cared for. Even their donkeys that they were so afraid were going to get stolen were well cared for. This is God's lavish grace. Joseph being the channel of God's lavish grace. The story closes with Benjamin. Everybody's in amazement. The story ends almost in a climax of amazement. Everybody's looking at one another, and they're speechless. Their mouth is open. They're like, what is going on here? Because everybody got portions from Joseph's table, which was amazing enough. But then they look at Benjamin's portion. It was five times as much as anybody else's. That was way more than Benjamin could even possibly eat. But El Shaddai, God Almighty, is making it clear, Benjamin will be just fine. And they all eat and drink and were merry. There's nothing phony about what is going on. These unexplained blessings are God's grace lavished on them. But just because they've experienced these wonderful gifts of grace doesn't mean there's no more trouble down the road. They will need more than the tangible manifestation of, uh, the the physical manifestation of God's grace, they're going to need the spiritual manifestations of God's grace. They're going to need not only the grace of God to provide food and comfort, but his grace that enables them to confess and repent of their past sin once for all. And that's what's ahead. But for now, whether you find yourself in life at the house of lost control or the patio of lingering fear or even the table of lavish grace, I trust you've seen how God, El Shaddai, God Almighty, is indeed powerfully present when life is unraveled, uncertain, or unexplained. And I trust that as a result of today's sermon, you'll be content with your weakness so that Christ's power may rest upon you. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that very thing. That as you've shown yourself over and over again as El Shaddai, God Almighty, the mightiest of acts shown at the cross of Jesus Christ, who bore the sin of those who believe in him, that they would be transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of the beloved son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, God, that through our sinful weakness, for those who confess and repent and trust in Jesus, you lay on them the power of the gospel to be saved. And Father, I pray that whether there are those in here that are finding themselves at the the house of lost control, and they just they realize they just don't have a grip on life, and they realize that's just the reality. We don't have control. 
Maybe they're at the patio of lingering fear, and fears continue to linger in their mind and worry over what's ahead. Or perhaps they're at the table of lavish grace. And all those things, Lord, may you be God Almighty to us, and may we be content with our weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on us. In Jesus' name, amen.